For some, this could be seen as a great day to preach. So much is going on. Rich array of topics. It's Trinity Sunday. It's the second Sunday of Pentecost. It's Memorial Day weekend. It's the end of the school year for many. There's an intriguing story about wisdom in the, from the book of Proverbs. We have Jesus' talk with his disciples that he hasn't told them everything. And then we have Paul's observation about how good suffering is for us. But I, I realize that I probably ought to limit what I say. Some of us have things to do this afternoon. And so I'm, I'm not going to be a coward, and I'm going to try to say some things about the most challenging idea, I think, the idea and celebration of the doctrine of the Trinity, and maybe to say a few things about some of the other topics. In the, in the church, there's an, an email list which includes people from all over the country who are deputies to the church's general convention. And there's been a lot of talk this past week about who preaches on Trinity Sunday. And it grew out of a discussion about, did anyone have a job description for curates? That is an assistant in the church. And sometimes it's the deacon who's in training to be a priest. Sometimes it's the assistant rector. But there was general agreement that this was a good Good Sunday for the rector not to preach. And that tr- the Trinity was too complicated a topic, and no one wanted to. So here I am. <laughs> You've heard before at St. Luke's about the Feast of the Trinity. It's an unusual festival because it doesn't celebrate a person or an event, but a doctrine of the church. It's not like Christmas or Easter or the Epiphany, which help us focus focus on something that happened in the life of Jesus, or even like a saint's day, like St. Luke's day, when we give special acknowledgement to our patron, Luke the Evangelist. The celebration today honors a concept so challenging to deal with that it's the source of many, many heresies in the history of the church. And almost any attempt to define the Trinity using language or analogies leads to a somber designation, usually in Greek, about what heresy that explanation is. And yet the the church has not proved that it's very easy to figure out how to get that definition right. I believe that's true because the Trinity is a doctrine that defies logic. We're a culture that wants a logical explanation of things, clear, unambiguous, specific statements, that will stand up to analysis. We're in the age of reason, the age of science. And this is a time that leaves little room for ideas like the Trinity, where one and three are said to be the same. And yet for the mystic or the poet or the dreamer, the idea of the Trinity, the one and three, may make perfect sense. We need to stop burrowing so deep into analysis and peering through a microscope at it and instead maybe catch this out of the corner of our eye or out of the corner of our soul. Well, I did look up a definition of the Trinity in a repository of doctrinal information, the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church, and this is what it says about the Trinity. The Trinity is the central dogma of Christian theology that the one God exists in three persons and one substance, 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is one yet self-differentiated. The God who reveals himself to mankind is one God equally in three distinct modes of existence, yet remains one through all eternity. So I hope that helps. Then it comments on and lists, mostly in, with Greek names, a whole string of heresies that have arisen when people tried to explain the Trinity. Some of the heretics were famous scholars of the church. Some were ordinary people. Some were probably curates preaching on Trinity Sunday. The version of the creed attributed to St. Athanasius offers this. The Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, the Holy Ghost incomprehensible, unquote. And that's part of the official definition. Well, it's not all of it, I confess. It's only a part of it. And on page 864 in the Book of Common Prayer, don't turn to it. Um, You can read the entire statement by St. Athanasius. The so-called Athanasian Creed, which was developed in order to eliminate heresies about the Trinity. And yet the Trinity as a concept is not specifically mentioned in Scripture, although we hear in many places that God, Yahweh, is the creator of all things, including humankind, made in God's image. And from the opening of John's Gospel, we hear of the Word, the thought and order of God, the Logos. Jesus is that Logos, according to John's Gospel, the incarnate organizing principle of creation, And when the incarnate life of Jesus as a human ends, at the time of the ascension, God stays with us. We are left with the Spirit of God, who is neither distant nor incarnate. And Jesus instructs his disciples to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in the last chapter of St. Matthew's Gospel. Of course, that gospel was written at least a generation after Jesus spoke those words or spoke whatever that, that idea was to his disciples. The Spirit infuses us with God. We say we're filled with the Spirit. The Spirit that breathed upon chaos, separating the land from the sky in creation, breathed upon the elements of the new earth, separating the sea from the land, breathed upon the man and woman, formed from the dust and created in God's image. And Jesus in today's gospel promises that this spirit of God's self will stay with his disciples and hence with us to guide us and to continue to enlarge our knowledge of the divine. And it's from this person of God that the human race is promised new teaching. Jesus tells his disciples that they are not ready for everything and that only in the future will they be able to absorb and understand new teachings. It is likely that the followers who originally heard Jesus' promise presumed that the time when they would be told more was in the very near future, in their own lifetimes probably. However, in later periods, Christians have realized that the truth is still unfolding And it is to this passage in John that many contemporary Christians turn, believing that it illuminates the opportunities to expand 
and experience new ways of living with others in the world, new ways of reflecting on and reading scripture, new ways of understanding God. There is always a danger, of course, that we, we will assume that we can hear almost anything we want to from the Spirit. And so many Christians prefer not to listen for the voice of the Spirit and to change their beliefs about anything. They'd rather have it all written down uh, in some place where they know what is true and allow anything else perhaps to be false. In the Episcopal Church, we have tried to stay open to that voice of the Spirit, of the Spirit assuming that when Jesus in this passage said to his disciples that he hadn't told them everything, that we are still going to learn new things, told us, inspired in us by the Holy Spirit. It's an important passage in any event, for here Jesus promises the power of God will be among us and will hear and comprehend what is happening, will help us to hear and understand more clearly what's occurring in the world. It's a passage that was cited, for example, by those in the 19th century who wanted to end slavery in the United States. Remember, slavery was acceptable in New Testament times. It was used to approve the ordination of women, to reflect on the church's teachings about divorce. And recently it's been uh, off, used to offer full membership in the church to gay and lesbian Christians. Those in our church who believe that the truth of God is still unfolding and that we don't know everything yet and that the totality of God's message to us did not end when the Bible was put together often point to this promise that Jesus made about God the Spirit. It's telling us not to read the scripture as the literal only and last word on God's message and teaching. So today's special acknowledgement of our Trinitarian concept of the divine remains a powerful reality in the life of the church and in the continuing evolution, if you will, of the ways in which God encircles the whole of life. Paul says in the passage we heard from his letter to Rome, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. The continuing presence of God the Spirit is a gift. As Episcopalians, we are Trinitarians. We're not Unitarians. That is, we do believe that faith, with faith that God is with us in several ways. And we need not be fretting about just how to define that or how to explain it. I think we have all had a sense of the divine in our lives. And the Holy Presence may manifest itself in different ways. We end our prayers with the invocation to the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yet we are monotheists, like Jews and Muslims, people of the one God, And as I said earlier, this concept is a difficult one to explain, but less difficult perhaps to experience. And that may be enough. The creator, redeemer, and guide is with us as a gift. As human knowledge advances, it's increasingly obvious that there are amazing questions about the nature of the universe, about the nature of our own minds and consciousness, about the expanding boundaries of what is being revealed, at best these journeys of exploration can show us that there is always more to know. I can't help thinking of those pictures from the Hubble telescope looking out into the cosmos. There's much we don't know.
The most exciting knowledge comes from experience and trust, not from definitions or rote acceptance. So this week, let's be especially aware of the ways in which God is with us. Let's try not to be analytical, but to be aware. I'd like to close by sharing with you a poem by Killian MacDonald called God is Not a Problem. God is not a problem I need to solve. Not an algebraic polynomial equation I find complete before me with positive and negative numbers I can add, subtract, multiply. God is not a fortress I can lay siege to and reduce. God is not a confusion I can place in order by my logic. God's boundaries cannot be set like marking trees to fell. God is the presence in which I live, where the time between what is in me and what before me is real, but only God can draw it. God is the mystery I meet on the street but cannot lay hold of from the outside, for God is my situation, the condition I cannot stand beyond, cannot view from a distance, the presence I cannot make an object, only enter on my knees. Amen.